Thank you, worship team. We have finally arrived in Matthew chapter 4. No need to stand up and applaud. We've been making our way to the Sermon on the Mount, which seems like forever, and we're right here at the front door in Matthew 4 because the Sermon on the Mount starts in chapter 5. So this is our last stride. This is our last movement before we get into that sermon. So we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 17, and also Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 4. So if you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to get one of the blue ones that's in front of you, page 809 and then 823. Matthew is the first of four Gospels, which Gospel means good news. And the announcement of the, 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 this good news is that the king arrived on the planet. His name is, is Jesus. And in the first three chapters, there's this layered approach or sort of step approach to the arrival of the king. In chapter 1, verse 1, he's announced as the son of David. So the, the king that's going to come from the line of David has arrived, and that's the person of Christ. In chapter 1, verse 23, his name is to be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So the king has not, not just come, he's come, and he's come to be with us. In chapter 2, verse 2, the wise men come. And they come to Herod, and they're saying, we're, we're looking for the king. Can you show us? Who the king is and where he is, and then John the Baptist in chapter three, he's calling out. He's saying, uh, "I'm I'm like a voice, and I'm trying to prepare a way for the king to come." In the New Testament times, the there would be like a, a a pavement crew that would go ahead into a city that would make straight the path. So when the the dignitary came to the city, it was an easy way. So John the Baptist is is the one man paving crew saying. Hey, don't look at me, but I'm trying to make it as easy for you to see the king. The king is coming, and his name is Jesus. And we see him sort of burst onto the scene in chapter 4. So let's stand together as we read these two passages. Matthew chapter 4, beginning with verse 17, and then Matthew 18. Matthew 4, verse 17. From that time, this is right after the time that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness, in the temptation, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And while walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was also called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called to them and immediately left their boat and their father and followed him. Then Matthew chapter 18, verses beginning with verse 1, Jesus speaking to his disciples. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, and they're asking this question, Who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to himself a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated and let's take a moment to reflect together on God's word.
one announcement that you can smell that I left out is that we're having a potluck meeting immediately following the service. And uh, that doesn't mean my sermon's going to be shorter, sorry to say. Uh, but uh, they're, they're setting stuff up even now, and if you're going to be around, we'd love for you to stay. Even if you weren't prepared, we, we prepared for you to be here. Um, but we'll need some able-bodied people to kind of unhook these chairs and start stacking them around. So if you're going to be here, just kind of stay in here, and there'll be some deacons that'll help you. I think it's possible, as we think about the sermon, I think it's possible that you could spend your entire life in church believing that the sum of the gospel... The totality of the gospel is this. Jesus died for our sins, so we get to go to heaven. You you could spend your whole life in church thinking, okay, what's the gospel? The gospel is Jesus died for my sins, so I get to go to heaven. And, of course, that is part of the gospel. That that great truth is, is contained in the good news, the totality of the good news. But... But just using that one sentence is is too narrow a definition. And one of the main things that is missing is that the gospel includes a a grand invitation to a great life-giving, adventurous life right now. It's an open invitation. When Jesus in chapter 4, verse 17, and he says, repent for the kingdom of God is near. It's something he's saying you can tap into now. It's just not a a series of facts that you have to understand, and then you apply it some later time. It's it's this great invitation. Jesus is more not just in the soul-winning business. He's in the redeeming business, and he's trying to redeem all of creation. And so it's this huge invitation that Jesus is using as his first sermon. And that's what I want to make my topic this morning, really just focusing in, focusing in on these words in verse 17 when Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Think about this phrase as like the... the the, the plaque at the beginning of a trailhead. So if you're a hiker here and you enter in on a trail, usually there's some sort of plaque there and it's telling you something about how long this trail is or different information that you might need to know saying you're just about ready to get onto this great journey and here's some information you need to know about the journey. And this little plaque, this one sentence sermon is like the plaque at the bottom of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is saying, hey, we got to make sure we understand the information on this little plaque so as we begin to go to the Sermon on the Mount, as we begin this great adventure through this uh, series, you understand what he's offering here before we get to the Sermon on the Mount. So I want to, I want to examine this invitation or this plaque in four different stages. Uh, the first thing I want to just uh, emphasize is that the importance of this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. I don't want you to think that, yeah, Paul just, you know, he got stuck on this one phrase this week and he's just stretching it out to a whole sermon. No, it's, it's really a very important theme through the whole Bible. So I want to just note the importance of the phrase. Secondly, I want to define, well, what is the kingdom of heaven? Third, well, how do you enter into the kingdom of heaven? And fourth, how, how do you begin to live in the kingdom of heaven? So I want to, let's make sure we understand the importance, 
try to give a definition, try to understand how you enter in, and then if you enter in, then how does life happen in this this new kingdom? So let's take those one at a time. First, the importance of the kingdom of heaven. If you just turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, so you just need to go go write a few pages. There's a series of parables that Jesus delivers, and he gives, or at least Matthew stacks them up six six deep. And you'll notice in chapter 13, verse 24, 31, 33, 44, 45, 47, they all have this same repetitive phrase, and he's saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. So here Jesus is, he's telling a series of stories or these parables, and he really is trying to say, hey, if you want to know what the kingdom of heaven is like, it's like something like this. And then he gives these great little stories, great little nuggets, not the totality of the kingdom, but something that you need to know about the kingdom. And then in Matthew chapter 10, if you flip back with me, verse 7, Jesus is, this is the first time he launches out his 12 disciples, these folks that he's called to become fishers of men. He's saying, okay, you've been with me probably at this point at least a year, and I'm going to send you out. Now you're going to become the evangelist. And I'm going to go ahead and tell you, 12, just here's your sermon, which I'd be like, this is awesome. Jesus is sending me out, and he's also giving me a sermon. And it's not surprising, verse 7, and proclaim as you go. Chapter 10, verse 7, saying, no shocker here, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So I'm telling you this is so important. I'm telling you all these stories are pointing toward it. it, And then I'm going to tell you go out and I'm going to say, you go say the same thing. So it's a very important phrase in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. You can just make a note of this. Jesus is with his disciples. This is after the resurrection. And it says this, to the disciples... Jesus presented himself alive after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about what's Jesus primarily speaking about in these 40 days. It says the kingdom of heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 3, the very end of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, the last two verses. So this is a bookend. If you're a a theologian, you're saying, okay, this is very important because I'm taking this whole book and I'm saying it's really wrapped around this one idea. And now it's the Apostle Paul in chapter 28, and he's in Rome, and he's proclaiming the gospel. And it says this, for two years, last two verses in Acts, Paul stayed in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him boldly and without hindrance he preached the kingdom of heaven. So when we see this phrase here, it's, it, it's, there's no way to stretch it to exaggerate it because it's, it's the key. It's what he wants everyone to understand. Jesus is coming saying, I want you to understand about the kingdom of heaven. So secondly, so let's just think about what is the kingdom of heaven. And this may be a difficult analogy for some of you all, but try to go back to when you were in high school And picture your high school history book. Now, I know this is hard. Some of you have to dust out some cobwebs. I mean, i got 10 years. i got to go back and try to think about when I was in high school, what a history book might have looked like. But you remember, you opened up your book, and, and it had a map. And usually it was of Europe or Asia or maybe the Middle East. And it had this shaded area on it. Remember that? And it stretched across some piece of geography, and it kind of looked like an amoeba. 
and it was shaded, and in that shaded area, it'd have a little phrase, and it would say, this is the kingdom or the empire of this particular person or this particular country or this particular group. And what the, they were trying to say is this, these boundaries that sort of circle this landmass, everybody was under the rule and the reign the, and under the authority of a particular king. This was his kingdom. So as far out as his kingdom extended, you did in that area what the king wanted you to do. And really it's the same thing in terms of the kingdom of heaven. It's, it's whatever's underneath the rule and the reign and the authority of God. So what is the kingdom of heaven? It's, it's whatever that's underneath God's rule and reign and authority. One commentator says this, God's kingdom is the range of his effective will. It's where what he wants done is done. So that, that's the kingdom of heaven. That's a simple definition of the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to make three comments about this particular point. So if you've taken notes, this is three comments under point number two. What is the kingdom of heaven? First thing, it, it, first comment is it's, it's a very important for us to know that every human is hardwired with kingdom cravings. This is a just an American thing. This isn't a time thing. This isn't, there's no boundary to this. Every human being is hardwired with kingdom cravings. Listen to how James Smith puts it in his book, You Are What You Love. To be human is to desire some kingdom. It's a longing. It's a vision for what we think society should be like. It's an orientation you have towards something you would call the good life. So you have some vision, you have some picture, and you say, this is the good life, whether it's for me or maybe a whole society. It's a picture that captures our imagination, Smith says. We crave that picture. And then we orient our lives in pursuit of that picture. I mean, you can just, you, you know this, you're a college student. You have a you have a picture. You have something that you're going towards. You 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 want to be married and you want to have a child. You you're getting a first job and you think, well, this is a good one, but I've got a picture of another thing. Whatever it is, you have some picture. Then you crave that picture, and then your life lines up behind that picture, saying, I'm going to just give all of my life to see if I can get that picture completed. The question, this is how James ends, the question is not whether you long for some version of the kingdom, but which version you long for. See, everybody longs for a kingdom on some picture they're trying to follow. And the question isn't whether you have the cravings. The question is, what is that picture? What is that kingdom in your mind? A children's storyteller said this, if you want to build a ship... Don't tell people to collect wood, assign them a task, and put them to work. Rather, teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. If you're trying to get somebody to build a boat, don't just give them tasks. Hey, go get wood, then come back, here's your task, and let's build it, and then we'll have a boat. No, help them have a picture of the immensity of the sea. So that when you back up and you start beginning to do these things, they're, they're towards this end, this picture. And so Jesus begins his ministry very wisely. This is the very first sermon Jesus delivers. I want you to know it's one sentence. 
I, I just don't want you to get used to one-sentence sermons. I'm just saying that right now. I mean, you might say, Jesus did it, Paul. Why don't you just get one sermon, one sentence? No, it's not going to happen. But I, I just, he does this so wisely, comes in, and he doesn't give a series of facts about himself or the world. Do you see how he makes a different kind of appeal? He comes into this world, and he tries to draw this grand picture. So you have this great invitation. He says, the kingdom of heaven, it's at hand. Every person here has kingdom cravings. And you think, gosh, I might be able to tap in, not to just my little idea of a kingdom. I could tap into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus is just beginning to stir people's soul with this phrase. What an invitation. And he's trying to help you see there's an immensity of the endless joy and glory of God. I'm trying to get you to see that picture before I come to the Sermon on the Mount and start giving you certain tasks. Does that make sense? Because if you don't really understand that and you just come in, let's say, next week is your first week at Christ Community Church, and you think, golly, I read these two chapters and it's just one's hard Lesson after another, one change I got to make after another. That's like the labor. That's like go get wood, do these tasks. And Jesus at this plaque is so important to say, no, you got to have a picture of the kingdom of heaven. That's what we're shooting for. That's what you can tap into. So that when you are dealing with your anger or jealousy or lusts or learning how to pray or how to live in this world, it's all because you have this great picture of the kingdom of heaven. And that's the goal. He's stirring up our imaginations to understand what this is and why it's important. Second comment here. What does Jesus mean when he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand? Kind of an unusual phrase, is at hand. I think the primary reason Jesus says that is because the king is at hand. The reason the kingdom is at hand is because the king has arrived. And I want you to know I'm the king. And, and because I've arrived, the kingdom is now closer than it's ever been before. And he's calling people. And you see it here just in these a few verses uh, past 17. He's calling people, these fishermen, and then all kinds of people, come and enter into this kingdom. It, you, he's come that you might have life to the full. And not life to the full just at some other point. It begins right now. You begin to tap into the kingdom of heaven because it's at hand. Here's how Dallas Willard expresses this, his thoughts about this word, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Willard grew up in Missouri. And in this farming area, they didn't have electricity when he was a boy. And he remembers when they put electricity down his road. And this is what he says, when those lines came by our farm, a very different way of living presented itself. (laughs) Our relationships to fundamental aspects began to change. Light and dark, hot and cold, clean and dirty. They could all vastly change for the better. Although electricity was at hand, we still had to tap into it. And when we did, it meant throwing away kerosene lamps, ice boxes, and scrub boards. And I'd be happy to say goodbye to those things. (laughs) See, see, electricity is at hand. And it's so near. It's running by your house. But you've got to connect to it. And when you connect to it, you begin to let go of other things that were at hand. 
other ways you lived your life. It totally, radically reorients your life. This is how he concludes the statement. Strangely, though the power to make their lives better was right there near them, some didn't enter into the kingdom of electricity. Some just didn't want to change. You have your own kingdom. And no matter how attractive I can make the kingdom of heaven, and no matter how close I can get it to you, you and I love our own kingdoms. And some of us would rather live with kerosene lamps and scrub boards and ice boxes rather than to tap into the kingdom of heaven, which is at hand. And so I'm asking myself, why wouldn't people tap into Jesus' offer? And the fact is, number three here, the fact that Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is at hand means other kingdoms are also at hand. He's not the only offer. There's all kinds of competing kingdoms. Your own little sphere, somebody else's idea of what life's about. And and this is why the Sermon on the Mount includes the Lord's Prayer. Remember what he says? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth. God, I, I have competing kingdoms in my heart. There are competing kingdoms in my culture. And I'm just praying that your kingdom takes preeminence. So so Jesus understands there are other kingdom opportunities out there. There are other things that people have their hands on. Last month, you remember, in this very first stride towards the Sermon on the Mount, I talked from Mark chapter 10 about these two different people. First, it was blind Bartimaeus. Remember blind Bartimaeus? Sits along the side of the road to Jericho. Hears that... Jesus, the son of David's coming by. The king is coming by this blind man. And so when he finds that out, he's like, have mercy, son of mercy, son of David, have mercy on my soul. People are like, yeah, I don't think he's paying attention to you, bud. He's moving on along. And he just screams out all the more. And then Jesus stops. And that great picture of this whole crowd, they're on their way to Jerusalem. They think they're really going to see something special here. And, of course, they are. And Jesus is walking through this dusty town of Jericho, and he stops. And everybody starts piling up on each other, saying, why has he stopped? And a way gets parted to this blind beggar who's got his cloak out, hoping to get some money from the pilgrims. And he's just screaming, Jesus, son of David, if you're out there and you can hear my voice, have mercy. And Jesus says, come to the king. And this great little piece of information that Mark puts down for us, he says, Bartimaeus threw his cloak aside. And for Bartimaeus, that was everything he had. That was the kerosene lamp, the icebox, and the scrub board. See, I'm going to tap in to the king. And when I tap into the king, I don't need this stuff anymore. It's not going to rule my life. And we contrasted that to the rich young ruler, same chapter. And this time the rich young ruler, he's coming to Jesus. And he's wondering, how can I tap into the kingdom? And Jesus says, you, you rich young ruler, you can tap in. 
Here's what you have to do. You have to get rid of all your scrub boards, kerosene lamps, and ice boxes. And then come follow me, and you'll have treasure. Imagine Jesus saying this. If you do that, you'll have treasure in heaven. And what did the rich young ruler do? See, I've got a kingdom. It's a pretty good kingdom. I'm young. I'm wealthy. I'm powerful. Morally, I'm a nice guy. And I like that kingdom. And he walks away. Jesus is so close to this guy. He couldn't be more at hand. But see, the rich young ruler, his possessions possessed him. And he couldn't throw everything aside. So the kingdom of God is at hand, but you have to tap into it. We can run the line so close, but if you love your own kingdom, you're never going to tap into the kingdom that Jesus is offering. Jesus doesn't have any interest in being an additive to your kingdom. Some people, Jesus says a little later, especially people with lots of resources, like people who might live in the wealthiest country ever in the world, prefer to believe and behave like they're the king. So it's so hard if you're used to resourcing yourself to tap into the king. Third point here. Now I'm on point number three. How do you enter into the kingdom of heaven? So it's at hand, and I need to know how to tap in. I'm interested. I'm interested in getting rid of this kingdom that I've constructed for myself, and I want to tap in. And one word, one picture, one word, repent. He says it, repent. It's, it's, it's turn around, and I, I really want you to hear this part. It's not a threat. It's an invitation. He's not the drill sergeant going, repent. He's not like some of the, the pastors I grew up with in small towns and Baptist churches. And, man, I thought the guy was just going to slug me when he came out with his good old repent. It's an invitation. It's made by a gracious God. You're living in a wrong kingdom. You have your house built on sand, and you don't know it. I'm here to say, you can put your house on the rock so that no matter what happens, you're always going to withstand, and I'm going to take you all the way home. It's right here at hand. If you would just turn around and grab hold of it, it's an invitation, not a threat. He's coming graciously saying, anybody can tap in because it doesn't have to do with you. It has to do with me. And I'm running my lines right next to every human soul. Remember last week's illustration, the proud captain? The proud captain was heading directly towards an un- oncoming ship, in case you weren't here. And he signaled the oncoming ship, turn around. In other words, Repent. And the proud captain got the the message from the oncoming ship to turn around. And he said, you know, I'm not going to turn around. No, you turn around. This is the SS Poseidon, and I'm Captain Frank Moran. To which the other ship finally signaled back to Frank and said, turn around. This is the lighthouse. 
You're, you're about ready to hit the rocks. You're on your way to the rocks, and I'm graciously pointing out, you need to turn around. Because you're going to shipwreck your soul. And I want you to get on this great adventure called entering into the kingdom of heaven that begins now and lasts forever. And you have to repent. You have to turn around. So that's a word. Some people don't like words, so Jesus understands that. They like pictures. I like pictures. I'm a picture kind of person. When I was in school, if it had pictures, I loved the book. Lots of words. Going to sit there for a while. So I love pictures. And so Matthew 18, here Jesus is. Such a, a, a painful moment, actually, with his disciples. The disciples are kind of walking along with Jesus, and they're having this discussion about each other. You know, who do you think is going to be the greatest? Well, I mean, if you, I, I hate to say this, but guys are terrible about this. I mean, women, you know, no, nobody's perfect. But guys, it's always just who's a little bit taller, who's a little bit faster, who's a little bit greater, who's a little bit, whatever it is. That's how guys operate. Who's in whatever pecking order? So they're just be, being total guys here, not in a great way. Who, who do you think is going to be the greatest? So they, they sort of pony up to Jesus, and they ask him this question. Now, th- this has to be painful for Jesus to have. The, these are my closest guys, right? And, and you notice they're not just trying to figure out who's going to be best over all the other people. They're trying to see who's going to be best inside this group. It's just not the people in here being better than the people out here. No, the people in here have a construct. Who's the best in here? And they're wanting to know who I can look down on. Jesus, can you inform me which number of people I can look down on in this group? So Jesus does a great thing. Gets a little child, which is a person of no meaning in this culture, really. And he has them stand among these 12 guys. And he says, I tell you the truth, unless you change, unless you turn around and you become like a child, listen, you'll never enter into the kingdom. See, children don't have any power. They don't have any authority. Children don't look down. And Jesus is informing his disciples with a very cold bucket of ice water saying guys if you insist on power and control then you won't need to worry about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven because you won't be there he's not saying you're going to be the least he's saying you're not even going to know because you don't get in that way you don't get in looking down you get in bowing down to the king. And then he sorts everything else out. You don't need to worry about that part. So you need to turn around. You need to get off of your kingdom and come to Jesus. But do you realize you can spend your whole life inside church, inside this small group of 12, and you're really using Jesus to provide you with a better kingdom? That's very possible. I've just, I'm just using Jesus to forward my own agenda.
And he's looking at people like that saying, you know what? You don't get in. You haven't really tapped in to the kingdom that is at hand. Well, if you tap into the kingdom, and then the question, if you turn around, if you say, God, I don't want to live my kingdom anymore. I want to live your kingdom. I'm I'm turning around. Jesus is bringing you into the kingdom. Then the question is, how do you live inside this kingdom? Because I'm used to living this way, and I need a totally different way to live. And the answer to that question is Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And you're like, oh, we've arrived, finally. How do you live inside the kingdom? But see, it doesn't matter. These things I say from today forward, it doesn't matter unless you're in. Unless you've looked at the plaque at the bottom and said, hey, I'm a person who's living for myself. And I need to repent. I'm going the wrong way. I need to go Jesus' way. Well, let me give you a little appetizer for the next couple of months of this sermon. Chapter 5, verse 13. Chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. So one thing Jesus is going to set up right at the beginning, this is why it's at the beginning of, of the sermon, is you're going to have dual citizenship for a while. You're going to be in the kingdom of heaven, but I need you to be in the world. Now, that creates a tremendous tension. Because it would be much easier to say, all the Christians, you know, let's just go out to Masonboro. Let's all get on that island, try to live together until Jesus comes back. (laughs) And some of us might be like, that's awesome. I'm up for that. But that's not the way it works. I need you to have a dual citizenship. I need you to be in my kingdom and and, and operate according to me, the king. But you've got to be in this world at the same time because you're going to be salt and light to the world. That's a huge tension that we're going to face every time. That's one thing that we're going to see. Second thing, because it creates a, a certain tension, John Stott says, chapter 6, verse 8 is the key to the entire message of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is what it says, chapter 6, verse 8. Don't be like them. See, I'm going to ask you to be dual citizenships, but you can't be like them. The key text of the entire Sermon on the Mount, too often... Stott says, we see in church, what we see in church is not a Christian counterculture, but conformism to the world's values. It's urgent that we not only feel the, 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 the greatness of this tragedy, but we see it. No comment could be more hurtful to the Christian than the world's, but you're no different than anybody else. So, so when we talk about the kingdom, the first thing to know is you know the king. You know the king. You've turned away from your own kingdom and you're saying, I'm tapping in. I'm getting rid of kerosene lamps and scrub boards and ice boxes. And he's going to help you do that in the Sermon on the Mount. So get ready, to, if you're a hoarder of those things, of throwing those things out. 
But you've got to love the king. You've got to have a picture of the kingdom of heaven because otherwise when you just get down to these single hard steps, you're going to say, I don't want to do that. I like anger. I like lust. I like my stuff. So you've got to have a picture of the kingdom. You've got to have a picture of the king holding his arms out saying, Come to the place that you can build your house forever and ever. So my question is just, do you know the king? Have you entered into the kingdom? Have you tapped in to the kingdom that's at hand? Let's pray together. Lord, we, if there's 400 people here, there's 400 competing kingdoms. Each person has an idea of what the good life is. And and we've structured our world. Sometimes we've even used Jesus to accommodate us in a way to get us to the good life. And you're, you're standing here at the base of this great mountain saying, Okay, I want you to know who the king is. I want you to know he has a totally different way to live. So help us to see... You, the king, help us to see, have a vision. Help us to have a different vision in our head of how we live our lives and what we're living our lives for. So that as we get into these passages week after week and they feel like planks in building a boat, we know we're, we're, we're on the verge of experiencing the immensity of the kingdom of heaven. And that would <laughs> propel us forth. Help us to not be afraid to grab hold of the kingdom because the king is good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.